This is EM Cases, EM Quick Hits Podcast. Quick, let's get on with it. EM Cases is part of SHREMI, the Schwartz Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. That's the nonprofit organization dedicated to improving EM care through high quality research and education. The opinions expressed on this podcast are intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any medical condition, nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified practicing physician. Unless stated otherwise, the opinions expressed by the host or guests are made in their individual capacity, not on behalf of the institute nor medicine cases. This episode is brought to you by Easy Recess, your ultimate support for the first hour of resuscitation. This amazing phone app has drug dosing, treatment algorithms, and procedural aids all in under three clicks. Rapid access to life-saving critical info in a user-friendly interface. Try the app for free with the promo code EMCASES or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCASES. That's the letters E-Z, recess.com slash EMCASES. First up, we have none other than Dr. Sarah Reed, our go-to peds guru. Now, have you ever seen a child in the emergency department who presents with vomiting? Enough said. So we often see little babies come in to emerge with vomiting, and it can be a bit tough sometimes to figure out, like, is this something serious or is this a baby that can go home? Most of the time, it's going to be something benign. Um, And so I thought we'd just talk about what are the things we need to do to safely send a baby home who has vomiting. The differential for vomiting, like isolated vomiting, is obviously really long and a bit hard to sort of organize at the bedside. So, you know, I kind of think about five big buckets, uh, surgical causes, infectious causes, CNS causes, so you know, raised ICP, serious CNS infection, uh, metabolic disorders, so inborn errors of metabolism, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, uh, DKA would be super, super rare in an infant. And then, you know, reflux, because sometimes reflexy babies can actually vomit as well. And when we're thinking about surgical, the three sort of big, of course, there's like a, quite a few surgical things that can present in infancy, but the big three would be malrotation with volvulus, pyloric stenosis, and intussusception. And if we're thinking of those surgical things, age really does matter when you're when you're figuring out which one to be worried about. Malrotation with volvulus is really an infant disease. So 90% of cases will present under the age of 12 months with about a quarter in neonates. That's the classic sort of bilious emesis in an infant. Um, that would be the big rule out. And then it can rarely present as cyclic vomiting later in, in life, but uh, really an infant disease. Pyloric stenosis, that's your non-bilious forceful emesis a very discrete time period where that presents. So between three and 10 weeks of age, peaking around six to eight weeks of age. And so that's what you would be thinking about when you see an infant at that stage. And then intussusception, the the idiopathic or most common form of intussusception presents in sort of mid-infancy into toddlerhood, peaking around nine to 10 months of age. And that's when you don't have a lead point. It can rarely present in early infancy, sort of in the neonatal early, you know, first three months of life, or later outside of toddlerhood, but in those cases, there usually is a pathologic lead point. And so, you know, your first thing, just as you do with any patient, is to figure out, is the baby sick or not? And if the baby's sick, then that's not a baby who's going home, of course. You're moving that baby into a resuscitation area. You're calling for help. You're doing your ABCs and doing a bedside glucose. You're trying to get some IV access, and you're pulling off some blood work because you're going to have a very wide differential for a vomiting infant who's unwell or unstable could be something as simple as just being dehydrated from the vomiting, but you know, you need to be thinking about like catastrophic illnesses as well. So you're going to be sending off a CBC blood culture, lights, BUN, creatinine, glucose, a venous gas, a lactate, CRP, 
you're going to be fluid resuscitating the baby. You're going to start broad spectrum antibiotics if you think uh, the baby has an acute abdomen. And, you know, really, uh, obviously, if the baby's super sick, your sepsis is always on your on your differential. If the baby's having bilious emesis um, or has a big distended belly, you may want to throw an NG down to decompress. You could try and get two views of the belly and add in the chest as well, just to see if there's uh, any signs of obstruction. And then you're going to be getting on the phone with your referral site or whether if you have pediatrics um, available to you where you work to see you know what the best next steps are. But this is a baby, if you don't admit to peds, this is a baby who is uh, going to be transferred out once they're stabilized. So not really what we're talking about today, but obviously sick infant with vomiting, you need to keep your cast the net wide and resuscitate them and, and get them to definitive care. But let's say, you know, the baby looks well. And then you're the big, you know, the next sort of thing you're thinking about is, uh, is there fever or not? So is the baby febrile for you? Or is there a history of fever? And if there is, then that really shunts the baby into like that infectious bucket. So is this just an early kind of viral illness or is there something hidden where, you know, they might need antibiotics, for example. So this is where your history and physical is going to focus and you're going to do, you know, a sort of a focus workup depending on the age and the appearance of the baby. So if you have a neonate who's vomiting and febrile, they're going to get a full septic workup. If you have a baby who's, you know, 29 to 60 days old, who is vomiting and febrile, they're probably going to get at least a partial septic workup. And, you know, an eight month old who looks super well, who has a normal physical exam, who's vomiting, you know, maybe they're just going to get a urine. So it's going to depend on their appearance and what you find on history and physical and their age. On your history, you know, you're going to do a full history, of course, of what's been happening with the baby, but really important to get a great, a good sense of what the characteristics and the sort of pattern of vomiting is. So is this bilious? Is it yellow? Is it green? Is it bloody? Bilious emesis in young infants looks kind of bright yellow sometimes. So it's just important to just ask what color it is. And then is this a baby who vomits here and there, but tolerates feeds in between? Or is this a baby who's vomiting every single feed? seems to be progressing. And those are two very different sort of patterns. And you'd be worried far less about the baby who's having a vomit here and there, but tolerates feeds in between because they'll be able to maintain their hydration versus the baby who's vomiting every feed and they're going to get dry. So um, you'd be thinking about more serious causes and you'd be a bit concerned about that baby going home if they're not able to, to maintain their hydration. You're going to also want to add in a few questions about behavior, and that's just showing that you've thought of interception in, in the right age group. Is this a baby who's having crying episodes where they're hard to console, seem in pain, drawing up their knees? Those episodes might be interspersed with periods of being quite well or periods where the baby looks sort of pale and flat and lethargic. So just asking that, you know, does baby seem okay behavior-wise? Do they think they're, they're acting as normal? And just documenting that uh, you've had that discussion with the parents. And of course, then the baby needs like a head to toe full physical exam, undressed, diaper off. You want to make a comment about how well the baby looks in terms of just their overall like general appearance, assess their fontanelle for signs of dehydration or signs of raised ICP, look in the ears and the throat for signs of infection, listen to the chest for the same, do a cardiac exam focusing on their perfusion, a good belly exam, looking in the diaper for inguinal hernia or, or testes um, not being down or perhaps torted assessing tone and strength, sort of just to round out your CNS um, assessment, looking at the skin to see if there's any sign of trauma, like bruising or, you know, a little rash that might indicate a viral illness. So they really need a full physical exam because of that really long differential that you're considering. And so your assessment is grounded in, you know, what age is the baby? What kind of things do I need to think about depending on their age? If they're sick or not sick by a pediatric assessment triangle, 
Do they have fever? Because that makes me think more infectious. Is there bile where I need to be worried about them having like an obstruction? Is it progressive versus intermittent? So here and there versus every feed where, you know, in the right age group, you'd be thinking more, okay, so this sounds like maybe it's a pyloric stenosis because now baby's feeding and vomiting every feed. And that sounds kind of persistent and progressive. And in the right age group, you'd be quite concerned about pyloric in that case, for example. Baby's overall behavior, thinking about intussusception, and then that head-to-toe exam, looking for signs of infection, anything else uh, that that's worrisome or concerning. And so you can kind of work through your differential then and cross things off the list um, in the absence of those more worrisome signs that we talked about. And so you're often left with a baby who has normal vitals, has no blood or bile in their vomit, is vomiting kind of intermittently, not too many times, tolerating feeds in between and able to maintain their hydration, looks well hydrated on your physical exam, and the rest of the physical exam is totally normal. And in that case, we often land with, yep, this sounds like it's probably an early viral illness, or maybe it's just their GERD that's a little bit worse today. And we send them home with good instructions, right? So that they can go home. And if the vomiting becomes persistent over a few feeds, if there's less than four wet diapers in 24 hours, if there's any bile or blood in the vomit, if the baby is very sleepy and hard to wake, so that's kind of how I describe lethargy, or if the baby's irritable and you can't console them. And then if the baby has having fever, the baby does need a bit of a safety net after a few days of fever to have a reassessment. So those are the kinds of things I talk to parents about. And, you know, sometimes they come back, oftentimes they don't, but it's important for us to just empower the parents. And I think by working through that checklist, you can feel comfortable that you safely can send that baby home. Wow, perfectly executed and summarized. Thank you so much, Dr. Reed. I love that little tip right near the end there in discharge instructions of telling the parents to look out for lethargy by saying, if the baby is very sleepy and hard to wake. Because I found that when I use the word lethargy, most parents don't understand what I'm talking about. So I'm going to use that one from now on. Now, before we get onto our next quick hit on orbital cellulitis, there are only a handful of tickets left for online podcast camp November 30th, December 7th, and December 14th, 2023. If you're an educator who's looking to boost your podcasting or public speaking skills or just looking to start a podcast, just ask Salim Rose or Aaron Seyal or Roy Baskin of the Cephalopod podcast or our next EM quick hitter, Britt Long. They've all taken the podcast camp course themselves. Go to podcastcamp.org for more info to grab one of the last remaining tickets. All right, here's Britt Long on orbital cellulitis. Orbital cellulitis is a diagnosis we have to make. Orbital cellulitis comes down to inflammation of the globe contents and the surrounding soft tissues behind the orbital septum. The orbital septum is the differentiating factor here. Inflammation or infection in front of the septum is preceptal or periorbital cellulitis. This includes only the eyelids. Behind the septum, though, is another story. An infection here can result in an abscess, optic nerve ischemia, orbital compartment syndrome, and infection can spread to the CNS. Before antibiotics, this disease was associated with a mortality rate close to 40%, and around the same number could lose vision if they survived. Thankfully, those rates for mortality and vision loss 
are now closer to 1%. Orbital cellulitis most commonly affects kids, usually in the winter or the springtime. Sinusitis is by far the most common cause. In kids less than seven years, it's going to be the ethmoid sinus, mainly because that's the only sinus developed at birth. But past that age, like in adults, it will be frontal sinusitis or even multiple sinuses involved. There are some other causes like trauma, other eye infections, dental infections, and even eye surgery. The majority of cases are due to gram positive microbes like staph and strep. Gram negative and anaerobic bugs can be involved. Especially if there's a dental infection. If the patient is immunocompromised, then mucormycosis and aspergillus could be potentially involved. Let's talk about the history and the exam. Orbital cellulitis can be a clinical diagnosis if you know what to look for. Our bedside assessment is diagnostic in over 80% of cases. A painful red eye with eyelid swelling and erythema is the most common presentation, but these aren't all that specific. We need to focus on red flags that can differentiate this from preceptal or periorbital cellulitis. Those red flags are pain with eye movements, restricted or altered eye movements, photophobia. Diplopia that resolves when the affected eye is closed, decreased visual acuity or color vision, a relative afferent pupillary defect, and finally proptosis. If one of these is present, think orbital cellulitis. Unfortunately, none of these are 100%, but focus on pain with eye movements or restricted eye movements, proptosis, And vision changes. Preceptal cellulitis won't have these issues. Patients with orbital cellulitis can have a fever, but you can't use this to differentiate it from other conditions. The final part of the exam is to check intraocular pressures. You need to do this because there is a risk of orbital compartment syndrome. When it comes to our workup, Imaging does play a big role in diagnosis. The go to test is CT of the brain and orbits with and without IV contrast. This can clinch the diagnosis, it can look for an abscess, and it can also evaluate for any intracranial involvement. If you find any of those red flags that I mentioned on the history or the exam, Strongly consider CT. CT has relatively high sensitivity and specificity, but if it's negative, especially early in the disease, MRI of the brain and orbits, with and without contrast, is better in finding subtle soft tissue abnormalities. MRI can potentially be the first line test in kids if this is available. But this is going to depend on where you work. 
There are several case reports and an observational study that looks at ultrasound for diagnosis, but this isn't quite ready for prime time. Let's finish with management. The first step is to speak with your ophthalmology specialist. These patients might need surgery. If there's intracranial involvement, then you'll need the neurosurgery specialist as well. In the ED, these patients need antibiotics that cover staph, strep, and then also those gram-negative and anaerobic bugs. This means something like vancomycin plus perpicillin tazobactam, ampicillin sulbactam, or a third-generation cephalosporin. If they have a severe penicillin allergy, then you can use vancomycin with a fluoroquinolone. Antibiotics are effective here. Over 60% of cases will fully recover with just antibiotics, but there are some patients who will need operative intervention. Those are more commonly older patients if they have diplopia, a larger subperiosteal abscess, or if there's intracranial involvement. Finally, if you've checked an intraocular pressure and it's elevated, you're concerned about orbital compartment syndrome, then the patient needs emergent lateral canthotomy with cantholysis. In summary, orbital cellulitis is due to inflammation of the globe contents and surrounding soft tissues behind the orbital septum. Look for those red flags on your history and your exam, and if you're concerned, get imaging. Once you have the diagnosis, speak with ophthalmology and get antibiotics on board. Excellent review of a pretty rare diagnosis that can be quite elusive sometimes. Thank you so much, Dr. Long. Next up, as part of our Best of University of Toronto Quick Hit series, we have Dr. Justin Morgenstern, who's going to give us an update on the use of TXA by EMS in the pre-hospital arena in the capital T trauma patient. He's going to talk about the fairly recent patch trial. And now for the best of University of Toronto Emergency Medicine. In Journal Jam 18, we teamed up with the skeptic himself, Ken Milne, to cover everything TXA. It's time for a brief update. Outside of Crash 2, the trial that started it all, we covered a lot of negative trials in that Journal Jam episode. TXA burst onto the scene as an apparent wonder drug, but over time it's lost some of its sheen. Since Crash 2, there have been many large, high-quality trials of TXA in other conditions. Halted, Crash 3, Women, NOPAC, Titch 2, and all of them have been negative, although not without some debate. And those of us that are old enough to remember journal clubs of the era will remember that despite being a huge trial, there were many issues with Crash 2 that left some uncertainty. So when you consider that one of the core tenets of science is replication, we have all been anxiously awaiting more data on TXA in trauma for more than a decade. The patch trauma trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a double-blind placebo-controlled RCT that randomized over 1,100 pre-hospital trauma patients to either TXA or placebo. 
They used the classic crash two algorithm with one gram of TXA pushed and another gram over eight hours. Their primary outcome was survival with favorable neurologic outcome at six months, which is usually considered as one of the most important outcomes that we can possibly look at. And the key result, no difference, not even a hint of difference. It was 53.7% versus 53.5%. The outcomes were identical. This is clearly a negative trial. Now, depending on the source, you'll hear a lot of different things about this trial because there were some differences in all-cause mortality. At six months, all-cause mortality actually wasn't statistically significant, but TXA did improve all-cause mortality at 24 hours and 28 days. Now, on the flip side, vascular occlusive events were not statistically different, but they were 4% higher with TXA. In fact, the difference in the stats for mortality and clotting are basically identical, although in opposite directions, so I don't think it's fair to claim one is positive while ignoring the other. Now, of course, these are secondary outcomes, so they might not be real at all. What does all this mean? Well, this is our first really big RCT since CRASH-2, and it is negative. But of course, like many trials, it's an imperfect trial. A lot of the placebo group got TXA anyway. A lot of the TXA group didn't get that eight-hour infusion. It's not a perfect trial. And we're talking about a 1,000-person trial versus a 20,000-person trial. So clearly, this trial does not overrule CRASH-2, but it should probably decrease our confidence a little bit. And it should increase the push for a true CRASH-2 replication. The bigger issue is probably the specter of potential harm. We've already seen a lot of data that we might be causing harm if we give TXA after three hours. And in fact, in this trial, it looks like even after two hours might be harmful. But bad neurologic outcomes weren't even on my radar. But this is a big deal. If you look at figure two in this paper, it is very clear that essentially all of the lives saved ended up with what they call a category four outcome, which is upper severe disability. So the saves are not pure saves like we would like them to be. These patients are ending up with severe disability. All of a sudden, this paper becomes a lot harder to talk about. What is the value of life? How does one compare quality to quantity of life? In other areas of medicine, we do have reasonably good data. When it comes to cardiac arrest, patients have stated pretty clearly that neurologic outcomes are more important than survival. But I'm not sure that data applies in trauma. These are young, healthy patients. In cardiac arrest, we're usually talking about older patients with multiple comorbidities. In those cases, I think most doctors would agree that we don't want to do life-prolonging therapy at all costs. But in a 20-year-old trauma patient, the discussion is completely different, and I haven't seen any data to help support that conversation. Bottom line, this is an important trial. This trial probably emphasizes that there are risks to using TXA, like there are with all medications, and that we need to consider its use carefully. That being said, despite being an important trial, I do not think that it's a practice-changing trial. For now, I will still follow CRASH-2, and I will give TXA to trauma patients with significant hemorrhage presenting within two or three hours of their injury. But I also eagerly await a, a true replication of CRASH-2, and I do think that there is a reasonably high chance that that replication will be negative and that TXA will be added to the long list of medical reversals. Excellent analysis as always. Thank you so much, Dr. Morgenstern. 
So the patch trial does seem to support the findings of the famous CRASH-2 trial that pre-hospital TXA reduces early death from bleeding in capital T trauma patients, but there are more survivors with poor neurologic outcomes in the TXA group. So this could have an impact on the patient's quality of life, not to mention implications for the patient's family and economic implications for the healthcare system in general. I agree that it's still worth giving TXA in the pre-hospital setting and within a couple of hours in the ED, and hopefully future studies will not only replicate CRASH-2, but find the subgroups who benefit the most that we can zero in on. Next up, we have our geriatric EM expert, Dr. Christina Shenvey, who's going to pick up from her quick hit on delirium way back from quick hits episode number 44 on recognition and workup. And in this segment, she's going to talk about prevention and treatment of delirium. And now a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade system is partially tech and partially a professional service. The web-based tool allows me to let Metricade know exactly how I want to be scheduled. The technology and the expert schedulers work together to produce a schedule that somehow meets the needs of the department, filling every shift while still letting me work more of the shifts I want and fewer of the shifts I don't. When you have a problem, there's an expert scheduler answering the phone who probably fills 2,000 to 4,000 ED shifts a month. They know all the intricacies of ED scheduling. This is not an automated push-button schedule. The technology is a tool to help an expert build a schedule to suit your needs exactly. Go see for yourself at metricade.com slash emcases. How can you prevent and treat delirium in your EDs? In a prior EM Quick Hits, we talked about how to assess and diagnose and evaluate patients with delirium in the ED. My name's Christina Shenby, and today we'll discuss prevention and treatment. First, you've identified this patient. Maybe they have delirium right now, or maybe they're just at high risk of developing delirium. What can you do? One thing is to avoid high-risk medications. Things like sedatives, lorazepam, diphenhydramine, things that could potentially trigger or worsen delirium. Second, restart their home medications. If there's a contraindication, of course, hold it, but restart as many of their home medications as you can. This will help make sure that their blood pressure stays the same, their blood sugar stays stable, and all of those things don't worsen the delirium. Try to treat the pain or other symptoms. If patients are in a lot of pain, that can worsen their risk of delirium. And then normalize their hydration and body functioning. Make sure they have someone who can walk them to the bathroom or get them a bedside commode or help up onto a bedpan. Make sure they can have just basic body functioning. And then hydration. If they need to be NPO, make sure you're starting a fluid drip on them. Or if they don't need to be NPO, go ahead and order a meal tray. Do that up front rather than waiting. Make sure that they have someone who can bring them fluids. We know that older adults tend not to have as robust a thirst reflex, so they can get dehydrated more easily. Having a volunteer or a nursing tech or somebody who can bring them water or snacks throughout their time in the ED can be helpful. And then avoid unnecessary disruptions or tethers. If the patient doesn't need to have a Foley catheter, don't put one in. That's going to worsen their delirium potentially or give them a UTI. If they don't need their continuous heart rate monitor and blood pressure cuff, 
then maybe take it off and just get vitals every few hours. That can reduce the tethering to the bed and also the discomfort. If a patient is developing delirium, you can hopefully use and partner with family members if they're there to help redirect the patient or reorient them or distract them or just reassure them about what's going on. Especially if they have hearing impairment or cognitive impairment, it might take a number of times of reminding them what you've told them about why they're here, what you're doing, and what the plan is. And then finally, reduce their ED length of stay whenever possible. We know that patients, especially when they're in hallway beds, the longer they're there, they are more likely to develop delirium. So the sooner you can get them either at least out of the hallway or up to an inpatient bed, the better. And once they have that transition of care up to the inpatient team, remember to communicate your concerns about delirium with the team. When we miss it in the ED, they're much more likely to also miss it on the inpatient side. So if you remind them, hey, this is a 95-year-old coming in for UTI with some vital sign abnormalities, and I'm a little concerned that they're at high risk for delirium, or they're starting to manifest some waxing and waning altered mental status, I'm concerned about delirium. That can help. What about treatment? Well, the bad news is you really can't treat delirium. You can only treat the underlying cause. And you can look for some of the rapidly reversible causes and treat those pretty rapidly. Your hypoxia, hypercarbia, hypo or hyperglycemia, hypo or hypernatremia, hyperkalemia, dehydration, anemia. Those I think of in the rapidly reversible causes. Treat those quickly. And then the other approach is really just managing symptoms. So treat that underlying cause, the UTI, but it's not going to immediately magically improve with the first dose of antibiotic. Sometimes you do need to treat the symptoms, but I would use non-pharmacologic approaches first. Things like verbal de-escalation or distraction. Some places have these busy vests or blankets that have little things that the patients can play around with. Things that can distract them instead of pulling out their IVs or getting more concerned about what's going on. Reassuring them or reorienting them can help. Now, one exception is if patients have cognitive impairment, then the reorientation can actually be kind of jarring. If they think that it is the year 1987 and that their significant other is still alive and you're constantly reorienting and that loved one is no longer around, that can be jarring to the patient. But that's the exception. Otherwise, distraction, reassurance, and reorientation can be helpful. Step two, let's say they're starting to get a little bit agitated. I would start with PO meds. And the best meds are the ones that they're already on at home. So check that patient's med list and see, are they on an antipsychotic of some sort? So start those medications first. If they aren't on anything at home and you feel like you need to start something for the patient or staff safety, then the goal of medications is safety, not sedation. I would avoid high-risk medications. These are things like diphenhydramine, frequently used in a B-52 cocktail for younger patients. But in the older patient, it can have problems. It has antihistamine properties as well as anticholinergic properties that can actually cause oversedation or worsening of the delirium. Also, avoid benzodiazepines if at all possible. They can cause sedation and sometimes paradoxical worsening of the delirium. 
And the sedation is problematic because it can last for a long time. If you give the patient IV lorazepam, you may find you go home, you come back the next day, and they are still sleeping. So start with PO meds. If they're on a home med, give that to them. If not, starting with an atypical antipsychotic, things like olanzapine, 2.5 to 5 milligrams, or risperidone at 1 or less milligrams, or quetiapine, 25 to 50 milligrams, although that can cause some sleepiness. If the patient is too agitated and really won't tolerate a PO medication, then you could potentially move to IM or IV medications with basically the same options. Your atypical antipsychotics, like olanzapine, 2.5 to 5 milligrams IM, or zeprasidone, 10 to 20 milligrams IM. I would be cautious, though, with escalating beyond that to things like benzodiazepines and use that only as a last resort if there's no other options for safety or if you're treating for alcohol or benzodiazepine withdrawal. If you remember nothing else, remember this. Avoid the B-52, that combination of diphenhydramine, lorazepam, and haloperidol. That can be very risky in older patients. It can cause over-sedation or paradoxical worsening or side effects like urinary retention. So remember, when you're addressing delirium in an older patient, first, Think about things you can do to prevent it from worsening, normalizing body functioning, avoiding tethers, getting them out of the hallway bed. And then for treatment, you can't treat delirium. Just giving antipsychotics isn't going to actually help the delirium. You can only treat the underlying causes. So work them up, figure out what triggered the delirium, treat that. And then you can manage symptoms with first non-pharmacological methods like reorientation, distraction, reassurance, or PO meds and then IV IM meds if needed. But the goal is safety, not sedation. And then what should we do with these patients? Well, if they have delirium, you should really consider admitting the patients. If they go home, unless they have good health care at home or somebody who can be with them constantly, there's high risk of them having complications or not being able to reach for help if they get worse. In fact, patients with delirium who are discharged from the ED have a higher mortality in the next six months compared with non-delirious patients. And the highest mortality, about 31%, is in those in which the delirium was not recognized. So with that, hopefully this will help you care for the next patient that you have with delirium in the ED. Thank you, Dr. Shenvi. There was a great list there of delirium prevention measures. So we sometimes forget from drug considerations to minimizing tethering and ED length of stay. And just to review there for treatment of delirium, look for the rapidly reversible causes like hypoxia, hypercarbia, metabolic derangements, volume depletion, and treat the underlying symptoms as well using non-pharmacologic things first, like reorienting the patient and distracting them with other things besides them pulling out their IV. For agitation, start with an oral antipsychotic and use the one that they take at home already. If possible, if they don't take one at home, then the antipsychotics are your go-to first line. So olanzapine, these are small doses, 2.5 to 5 milligrams. Risperidone, 0.5 to 1 milligram. Or quetiapine, 25 to 50 milligrams orally. Remember that your goal is safety and not sedation. If you do need to go to something like haloperidol, especially if you're using it IV, make sure you start at really, really low doses. 
We're not giving two milligrams of IV haloperidol to a 90-year-old. Start with 0.25 milligrams to 0.5 milligrams. And Parkinson's patients are a special set of patients that we have to be aware of when it comes to antipsychotics because they can easily induce dyskinesia and other extrapyramidal symptoms. Quetiapine is probably the best choice, again, starting at a very low dose, but I'd recommend consulting your pharmacist before giving any antipsychotic to a Parkinson's patient. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Easy Recess, your ultimate support to save lives during the first hour of resuscitation. Picture this. You're faced with intubating a seizing child, managing a peri-arrest patient with a beta blocker overdose, or resuscitating a breathless premature newborn. Calculating doses, setting up drips, choosing the right equipment, and remembering each step can be overwhelming. Easy Recess changes the game. Download Easy Recess today. Use promo code EMCases, that's one word, E-M-C-A-S-E-S, to get your first two months free or visit easyrecess.com slash EMCases for more details. And Easy Recess is E-Z-R-E-S-U-S. Next up, new to EM Quick Hits, is Jason Hine, an ED doc from Portland, Maine, with a special interest in procedural skills decay. Take it away, Dr. Hine. Throughout our careers in medicine, we're always taught to be lifelong learners. This involves learning and maintaining our knowledge and skills. For the cognitive side of things, we do pretty well with this. We read journal articles, listen to amazing podcasts like this one, and read informative blogs. But there's a blind spot here and in continuing medical education we're not addressing. And that's our procedural skills. Now, while cognitive science has shown us that our tactile skills do decay more slowly than cognitive ones, we all in EM do less to maintain these skills. This is a setup for procedural skill decay. This is a particularly dangerous reality in HALO, high-acuity, low-occurrence procedures, where clinical practice alone is not enough to stay sharp. This sets us up for procedural avoidance, errors, and even patient harm. I'd like to pose you with a challenge. Try to think of another high-performance field where the performer does not routinely practice their craft. Firefighters run drills. They even light buildings on fire and put them out. Athletes practice ad nauseum to perform at their fullest. Think even on world-class musicians. Imagine a master violinist. Once they reach peak performance, they don't put their instrument away and pick it up five years later hoping to operate at the same level. But that's what we do with procedures like transient pacing. But do not be dismayed because there's hope. There are easy ways to combat this skill decay. Cognitive science shows us that spaced repetition is the most efficient and valuable way to keep these skills sharp. Unlike college where we would cram for hours before a test only to forget it the very next day, we want this to stick for the long term. This takes spacing the training out over weeks and months. The length of a training session is going to depend largely on the complexity of the procedure. For more simple procedures like Crike, this can be done in short segments like 15 to 20 minutes even. For more complex tasks like transient pacing, this will likely take 30 minutes to an hour. Now, the interval between the sessions is mostly going to depend on your comfort and familiarity. If it's been a while and you're rusty, you may want to start with intervals set to a few weeks. As your confidence and the long-term retention grows, these intervals can be spaced up to many months. Now let's talk about the details of how we train. For this, there are three easily accessible ways. The first is active video review. This involves sitting down with pen and paper, actively watching the film. You're going to want to pause, rewind, take notes. Write down that esophageal balloon pressure target for your Blakemore. 
When doing this, writing things down, making flashcards, drawing infographics can be helpful. This is a process called generation, which really helps make the learning stick. The second way to practice is to harness the power of the mind in what is called mental modeling. This is not just sitting down and thinking about the procedure. Similar to simulation, this takes a bit of buy-in. Rather than just reflecting on the procedure, you're going to use your powerful mental simulator to bring a robust case to life. Think about the patient and the reason for presentation. Bring it into your department where you'd have to execute the procedure in real life. What room would they be in? What will you ask from the nurse? What will you get for yourself? What sounds do you hear? What smells are in the room? For the Blakemore, smell that hematemesis. Hear that telemetry. With a stage set, walk through the procedure, start to finish. The final way to practice is with simulation. This can be low, mid, or high fidelity, but getting your motor neurons involved in this process can be really, really helpful. One last thing to consider with this training is a process called stress inoculation. This is the concept of purposely adding stress to your practice. In large doses, stress completely overwhelms the brain and precludes learning. But in small doses, it can actually enhance learning. This may be why reviewing difficult cases can be so helpful. The other potential benefit here is that it better approximates the real-life scenario. Now, you will never recreate the adrenergic surge of actually having to do a crike, nor should you really want to. But recollecting and practicing the steps of a crike with a little adrenaline in the system makes you more comfortable with executing it on a patient when the time comes. To inoculate stress, there are again three ways. The first is to time yourself. This simple little trick can be remarkably effective. Now, if I walked up to you right now and told you your shoe is untied, then pulled out a stopwatch and said, tie it as fast as you can, and press start, you'd get a little burst of adrenaline. Now, the target for these procedures is, of course, not just speed, but smooth, purposeful, efficient movements. The next way to add stress can be actually kind of fun, and that's with audio cues. This takes a little knowing of thyself. In a critical case with alarming telly, one of the first things I do is ask the nurse to silence the alarm. I am looking at the monitor. I know they are tachycardic and hypoxic. Alarming telly just drives me nuts. So an audio file of beeping telemetry is a great stress inoculant for me. If you're a parent, maybe a crying baby will work for you. How about a crying baby with alarming telemetry? These simple audio cues are remarkable stress inoculants. The third and final way to add stress is to perform in front of an audience. Now, following our rules of three, there are three ways to do this. The first is to practice in front of your family. Many of us leave work at work for obvious reasons. So to practice a lateral canthotomy in front of a significant other is a stressful thing. The second way is in front of a colleague. Find someone just as dedicated to mastering their procedural skills and practice in front of each other. This is another way to get good feedback, which is an integral part of deliberate practice. The final way is in front of a learner, and this is my favorite because, like we mentioned in the beginning of this podcast, we are all supposed to be lifelong learners, but rarely do we get to put that into action. To tell a learner, look, I'm fallible and I need to practice to keep up my skills, then asking them to watch, learn, and give feedback is a great way to model that lifelong learner and add a little stress to your training. Finally, it's important to recognize that anything is better than nothing. You don't need to dive right in with all of these recommendations right away. If you do, very good for you. But recognize that any step that you take toward improving your procedural skills is a step in the right direction for you and your patient outcomes. Thank you so much, Dr. Hine. 
Last but not least, we have, as part of our Wilderness Medicine EM Quick Hit series, Dr. Aaron Billen, an ED doc in Wyoming and Master Fellow of the Academy of Wilderness Medicine, as well as preceptor at the Wilderness Medicine Institute of the National Outdoor Leadership School. He's going to give us his take on the recognition and management of altitude-related illnesses. Let's get started with a case. In order to fend off burnout and to feed your passion for the outdoors, you volunteer in your free time for your local search and rescue team. Your team gets a mutual aid request to assist in the search for a missing solo peak bagger. This involves being inserted rapidly by helicopter at an altitude of 3,800 meters. Shortly after arrival at your search area, you were overcome with an unrelenting headache, nausea, fatigue, and brain fog that threatens your effectiveness as a searcher and wilderness caregiver. Here's Elise Lowe, another doc on our search and rescue team, with her observations from a similar real-life mission. Growing up in Wyoming, I was used to spending weeks at a time up at high altitude, and it never bothered me. But it was certainly a different experience when we were dropped off on top of Sundance Peak while searching for a missing hiker in the Absorca Beartooth Range. Three of us were picked up at 4,000 feet and dropped off at 12,500 feet. I was not prepared for the initial shock of air hunger. I just felt like I couldn't get a big enough breath to feel satisfied. It was like having a panic attack. The physical sensation got better pretty quickly, but we continued to suffer from major cognitive effects and headaches. Throughout the day, we were struggling with communicating with other rescuers about where we were on the map. We could perform all our muscle memory activities of hiking and scrambling and searching, but did not have the bandwidth to troubleshoot communications issues and really to make a reasonable plan for a high-probability search pattern. It was really eye-opening. While there are lots of ways that altitude can make you miserable, we're going to focus on the life threats. Namely, one, acute mountain sickness, or AMS, and its progression to high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE. And two, high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE. While the atmosphere on top of Mount Everest is 20.93% oxygen, just like at sea level, the partial pressure of oxygen is greatly reduced. With increasing altitude, there is decreasing partial pressure to drive oxygen across the alveolar membrane, and this leads to hypobaric hypoxia. Think of acute mountain sickness, or AMS, as a continuum that begins with a headache and may progress to significant cerebral edema. Both oxidative stress and increasing intracranial pressure have been proposed as mechanisms for this progression. A headache may be the first and only symptom of high-altitude exposure. It usually responds to supplemental oxygen by nasal cannula at one-half to two liters per minute to ensure that the arterial oxygen saturation is greater than 90%. Pharmacotherapy includes NSAIDs and or acetaminophen. Narcotics should be avoided as they can depress ventilation and predispose to acute mountain sickness. Acetosolamide and dexamethasone are very effective in preventing high-altitude headache. More about that in a moment. A diagnosis of AMS is made with a score of three or more on the self-reported Lake Louise score. This must include a gain of elevation in the past four days and a headache. Other symptoms considered include gastrointestinal symptoms, fatigue or weakness, and dizziness or lightheadedness. Another important clue is the absence of the normal diuresis of altitude acclimatization. Awakening to urinate during the night suggests that a well-hydrated individual is acclimatizing to high altitude. If not, they should be monitored for the development of AMS. 
Remember that AMS symptoms are nonspecific and overlap with dehydration, exhaustion, hyponatremia, hypothermia, hypoglycemia, and others. Those exhibiting symptoms consistent with AMS should stop ascent and not resume ascent until the symptoms have resolved. Ibuprofen can be used to prevent AMS, but acetosolamide is superior. Acetosolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor that directly stimulates the central respiratory center and works by hastening the increase in ventilation and diuresis that normally occurs with altitude acclimatization. Prophylaxis of AMS should include acetosolamide, 125 mg twice daily, and for treatment, 250 mg twice daily for two days. Be aware that acetosolamide, especially at the higher dosage, alters the taste of carbonated beverages and can be associated with troubling paresthesias. AMS, and particularly its associated headache, can be very responsive to supplemental oxygen. However, oxygen is usually only available at altitude from EMS, ski patrols, and on organized mountaineering expeditions. It is important not to ascend to a higher altitude until the symptoms of AMS are resolved. If the symptoms do not resolve within 24 hours or get worse, it is important to descend to a lower altitude. 500 to 1,000 meters is often sufficient, especially if symptoms develop of worsening altitude illness. If descent is not practical, moderate to severe AMS can be treated with two to six hours in a portable hypobaric chamber, such as a gamo bag, inflated to two PSI. What would you think if one of your search and rescue team members developed stumbling and mental status changes at high altitude? Ataxia, where the recent ascent to altitude is high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE, until proven otherwise. Think of HACE as the life-threatening progression of AMS. It involves the development of more severe neurologic symptoms and signs such as ataxia and altered level of consciousness. Rarely other clues can include hallucinations, seizures, and focal neurologic findings. HACE is a medical emergency and requires the immediate descent in altitude to at least 1,000 to 3,000 meters. The more, the better. Also administer dexamethasone, 8 milligrams IV, IM, or PO, and then 4 milligrams every 6 hours. Supplemental oxygen should be administered to keep arterial oxygen saturation more than 90%. If the patient is comatose, manage the airway and drain the bladder. If descent is not practical, a portable hypobaric chamber should be used. If neurologic symptoms do not improve with appropriate treatment, consider evaluation for a cerebrovascular accident. Evacuation to a medical center with sufficient capabilities is always required. Now, what if your team member was leading the way early in the mission, but is now lagging behind? High-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE, usually begins as decreased exercise performance and increased recovery time and is caused by hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction and endothelial leak. HAPE is not necessarily a part of the AMS continuum. Dyspnea on exertion progresses to dyspnea at rest, tachycardia, tachypnea, fatigue, weakness, lassitude, and low-grade fever. Late findings include cyanosis, audible rowels, hemoptysis, marked hypoxemia, and mental status changes. Be aware that high-altitude pulmonary edema and high-altitude cerebral edema may coexist. Treatment of HAPE involves immediate descent of 500 to 1,000 meters and supplemental oxygen. If oxygen is not available, sustained release nifedipine, 20 milligrams every 8 hours or 30 milligrams every 12 hours, can reduce the associated pulmonary hypertension. Once again, if descent is not practical, 
a portable hypobaric chamber can be a substitute. Although not well studied in HAPE, consider dexamethasone, 8 milligrams every 12 hours, in individuals with mental status changes to treat coexisting high-altitude cerebral edema. Acetosolamide may be helpful for all altitude illnesses in that it hastens acclimatization. Of course, plan for evacuation to appropriate medical care early on. So there you have it, the high-altitude sickness continuum, which can progress to high-altitude cerebral edema and high-altitude pulmonary edema, the two potentially deadly conditions caused by high-altitude exposure without proper acclimatization. Although medications can be used to hasten acclimatization and in treatment, prevention with gradual ascent and treatment with immediate descent are key. As all altitude illness improves with descent and will have often improved significantly upon arrival at most emergency departments, you are more likely to encounter significant altitude illness in the mountains rather than in the emergency department. For emergent search and rescue missions involving rapid ascent and physical work at 3,500 meters or more, the Wilderness Medical Society recommends acetosolamide, 125 milligrams every 12 hours, and dexamethasone, 4 milligrams every 6 hours. Unfortunately, this mission ended with a subject being found a couple of weeks later deceased under a pile of rock slide debris. Well, that about wraps it up for this EM Quick Hits episode. Hope you learned a little something about vomiting in babies, orbital cellulitis, TXA and trauma, prevention and treatment of delirium, prevention of procedural skills decay, and altitude sickness. The next EM Cases main episode I'm totally psyched for. It's with the amazing Burke Tillman and Scott Weingart. And it's going to be one of those really scary and one of the most challenging presentations we see. I won't give it away just yet. For those of you who are coming to Podcast Camp, I can't wait to see you there. And for those of you who are still interested in Podcast Camp, there are still a few tickets available. So until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 